From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Groundsman, brought to you by Are You Not Entertained and our friends at Sports Digital. Joining me, as always, my two fellow slackers, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan. Rog, how are you, my friend? I'm good. Um, recovering a little bit from last week, but um, strength coming back. Very, very happy. Well, we'll talk about last week in a minute uh, after we've welcomed the captain to the show, Giles Morgan. Giles, uh, you seem to have been given a very strange middle name. <laughs> yes, the Dilwyn is uh, is my middle name. I've been hiding it from the world for some time, but um, it's sort of out now. So uh, it's a nice it's a nice name from Mid Wales. I inherited it from my grandfather, Ewart Dylan Morgan, and uh, it seems to have passed through the generations. So there you go. I'm not really a captain. I'm actually a Dilwyn. <laughs> it, 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 looked, it looked to me like one of the boards on Countdown when I first saw it. I wasn't quite sure if we were supposed to make words out of it and see if Roger and I could outscore each other. Gentlemen, uh, we three have come together in person last week, um, and that was the genesis for this podcast. We all met up at the uh, 2021 Sports Summit in Lake Coma, organised by Roger and Raffaella, uh, and it was truly an extraordinary gathering. I I was a a very happy attendee. I felt uh, quite privileged to be inside the tent with the great and good of the sports world, and I think what we saw, and more importantly what we heard during those two days uh, by beautiful Lake Como was, as I said, the genesis for this podcast. There were, there were some conversations that you had to be there, literally, because it was Chatham House rules, but um, I think uh, stirred up an awful lot in all of our heads, and this seemed like a great opportunity to come together, talk about some of the themes that, that kind of came through and, and kick around what it means to sport. Rog, you and Rafa did a phenomenal job in putting that that couple of days together, um, both in terms of the guest list and the logistics. So let's come to you first and talk a little bit about um, your takeaways from from the Sports Summit. Yeah, well, thank you. It, it was great to, to see everybody contribute so well. I think the Chatham House rules thing really, really helped, uh, as did the, the limited size, 40, 50 people. Um, from the very first moment and the first morning, um, people just seem to drop their guard and be very, very honest. We split the, the conference into three themes, really. Um, you know, the first one was, you know, has sport um, reached its Elvis Presley or, if you want, Sex Pistols moment, uh, where uh, what we thought was real, you know, if you continue the analogy, uh, jazz music, crooner music, uh is going to be wiped away by an Elvis Presley or indeed a, a, a John Lydon, um, blowing away all the old institutions, all the old ways of thinking. It's not a flash in the pan. So we spent um, the first morning talking about all of that, um, the product, if you will, the product. Um, then in the afternoon, we, we talked about how does sports leadership try and manage that, take it to a safe port, um, the reality as opposed to the narrative, the Kool-Aid um, and, and what really was 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 real. Um, and then, and I think, you know, this is what you're alluding to, Grant, and, and the second day we, we, we took that product and we tried to find um, market fit uh, with, with finance obviously being um, the people that you had to convince that you had product market fit. And, you know, the conversations 
on the second day, both microfinance but also sport tech micro, I, I think really, really um, energized people. So um, I, all I can say is I, I want to thank everybody that came, you know, especially you two. Um, it was a culmination of, of what we've created over three and a half years. Um, the community felt very comfortable. They all said they felt as if, you know, they were coming to almost like a wedding party or a, a you know, a, a really good dinner party. There was no feel that it was a conference at all. It was just a lot of, you know, our network, colleagues, friends and, and startup clients all together. And, you know, from the moment Giles welcomed them on Wednesday night, um, it just went really, really well. So I, I'm really happy, Grant. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about um, some of the stuff we've heard while, while staying true to the Chatham House rules, obviously. Um, but Giles, just a few reflections from you on, on what you saw and heard. Well, I've uh, gone up uh, about an inch and a half in trouser size, which is testament to the very fine food that you can find on the banks of Lake Como and the brilliant hospitality that Roger and the team found for us. I, I, I felt literally like a truffle pig. It was magical. But on a more serious note, I think we've all been to many conferences, spoke at many conferences, been at many gatherings in all of our careers across all the different sectors we've worked in. Not to see one PowerPoint, not to see one document, and more importantly, no one selling to anybody rather than just conversing and sharing in an open way was so refreshing for me because rather like this podcast, it was educational, but I think everybody found it educational. And I don't care whether you're, uh, you know, we had a very, very senior ex-banker um, from Goldman Sachs who, who spoke very eloquently and he came away saying that he had learned so much. And this is a guy, people at Goldman's tend to have invented, um, you know, they, they've kind of split the atom, most of them, and they've done it all. And he was very, very humbled by it. And I, I felt that was something very special. And what this, when you guys set out with this podcast, what it seems to do for people is to educate all of us. It's not putting us or the experts in a place of superiority. It's putting it in a conversation where everybody can learn from, from, from the community. And I think if Are You Not Entertained has become anything, it's a, a very powerful community of people who are there to listen and learn. Yeah, I think that for my own part, um, as I said, you know, it's, it's not my world. The world of sport is not my native environment. Um, I was a lot more comfortable on the second day when we were talking finance. But... Um, I say that with tongue firmly in cheek, mostly to ward off the pain from my root canal, but also, yes. uh, also because um, you know I, I've, I've I've never felt more comfortable actually in a conference listening to to people talking there. And you know, Roger, I think as you said, the um, the honesty and the openness that everybody uh, displayed amongst that group of people was incredibly refreshing. You know, I'm used to being at finance-based conference where everyone keeps their cards very close to their chest in, in what is a hugely competitive environment. Um, but it's tough to think of a more competitive environment than sport, and yet all the people there, and these were very, very well-placed people from from every for every aspect of sport, right? We had, we had athletes, we had executives, we had startups, we had broadcasters, we had just about everyone covered and the collegiate atmosphere and the idea of, look, you know, the industry of sport as a whole has its challenges and those challenges affect all of us. Let's kick them around. Let's share ideas. Let's share possible solutions. Let's, let's talk about, you know, failures that we've encountered and, and roadblocks we've reached in the hope that other people can, can use that to work their own way around them. It was, it was breathtaking, Roger, absolutely. And, you know, the, the backdrop was wonderful, um, but you expect that from Lake Como. But, but I, I have to say... For, for, for me as a kind of jaundiced, cynical finance guy, to, to witness the camaraderie in, in that industry and in that room was was absolutely a breath of fresh air. And, and a lot of that is is laid at the feet of you and Rafa for creating that environment, frankly. But wasn't it wonderful, um, Grant, to uh, to spend two days with Roger because he was playing mine host so magnificently and with all of the, uh, the charm that you'd expect from a resident of Lake Como is because he was really... Um, maybe the moderator and trying to sort of make sure everybody was corralled properly. We didn't get the full Roger Mitchell. We didn't get one, two barrel blast 
at all. It was heaven for me. It was it was Roger muted. It was just so peaceful to see him in in, no. in host form. <laughs> we won't last. No, I know g- it won't last. Give me give me Roger at full speed any day. Give me Roger at full speed any day. Well, look, chaps, that's, that's kind of we've 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 blown enough smoke up, Roger. Now, so let's let's talk a little bit about the important things that that came out of this, um, Rog. You know what what. Did you take away as, as the overriding theme of this of this uh, two-day conference? The thing, the thing I really liked, and a lot of the exit interviews um, confirmed that, is that everybody talked about this puzzle. That uh, I think somebody said um, we've all got a little piece of it, um, and we don't really know what the missing pieces are and what everybody else is holding. Um, Everybody knows the, the the issues in the sports industry. We don't need to repeat them. Um, the, you know, the revenue model, is subscription going to work? Is Gen Z interested or not? Um, governance, is, is it really suitable for 2022? All of those things. Um, everybody um, basically said, look, we're, we're working through this. Uh, we and, and they just shared some of their concerns. Piracy was a big, big concern. You know, if uh, if I had to put one thing, you know, what my takeaway was, it would have been very simply this. Uh, for the last 30 years, the sports industry has basically been funded by some kind of pay TV or cable TV model where some, somewhere uh, somebody is paying a subscription to get access to sport. Um, we, we, re- we heard how much... Um, Piracy is costing the industry $28 billion. Uh, we heard how much kids have uh, got some kind of like um, uh, 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 little blockage to try and pay for anything in terms of content. Um, and we faced up into all of that. We said, well, if that's the case, what happens? Um, the, the, does the role of the sponsor comes back? Like in the good old days when, you know, soap operas were called soap operas because P&G financed them. Um that's, that was my takeaway. Is the driver, the revenue driver uh, of the subscription to a sports channel, is that going to go away? And if it does, where do we reach out to save ourselves? Well, I think what for me, just picking up on that is, and we've again, again, talked about it, but it was great to have this conversation validated by so many other experts in the room is one to reconsider the media model that has been the the, the engine room for sport. And secondly, Whilst everybody's been um, talking about first party data and owning your own fan audience, um, I think people have sort of genuflected at that altar without necessarily really understanding what it means and what direct consumer or direct to fan really means. And what I was very encouraged about is that the people who were in Lake Como were beginning to see how important that new model has to be, not would be nice to do. I was having a conversation earlier today with Jeremy Darrick from uh, Sky, who was on our show, whatever it was, three or four months ago, former CEO of Sky. And he was talking about how narrow an industry, the sports industry, has been for so many years. And really that in, in, in finance terms, most of sport is still quite a cottage industry. Sport, because the brands are so big within sport, the implication is that the businesses are so big. But in fact, sport hasn't invested in the way that a Procter & Gamble or a Unilever or an HSBC have in other, in other areas. Therefore, we look at a mighty football club that has supposedly billions of customers, but they're not billions of customers. They are fans not converted into customers. And therefore, a lot of the investments that other businesses, particularly in retail, FMCG, would have made to build their businesses, particularly in the digital era, sport's been very much behind. And therefore... The penny has taken a a long time to drop. We've been talking about it. And I know right now it's the Leaders' Conference um, going on in London, which is one of the major conferences in sport. And I suspect everyone will be sort of knocking out the data thing again and again. But I still don't believe that the big businesses have have really invested in their audience to get them through the other side. And, And that will be... As we start dealing with the future and the very turbulent times ahead, and I know we'll talk about that in a second, if you don't know your valuation of your customer customer base now, at a time when the 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 the, the waves have been a bit choppy, we've ain't seen nothing yet. 
if you can't if you can't know your audience and really know your audience, I think there's there's trouble ahead. So for me, doing it in the in the kind of gentle confines of Como with people who all respected each other enough to be open was was a glimmer of hope actually. One of the most fascinating debates was um, was this thing around um, what comes first, chicken and egg, is it audience or is it the event? You know, so we had a session where we had two guys that have created really big businesses, one Lucas Van Kranatz of One Football and the other one Dan Porter of Overtime, taking two very different approaches to how to make a business in the sports uh, um, uh, industry now. And they've, they've, they've almost come at it from two different ways. You know, Dan very much starts from the audience. Um, and, 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 you know, one football has got a very different model. And, and I think that was very, very emblematic of what, what Como was like. It was um, just honestly saying, this is what I'm doing. How do you see this? And somebody replying just very transparently. Well, I, I, what I took away from those two days was change. Uh, it, you know, it began with change, as you said, Roger. That first that first session was all about you know whether sport had reached its Elvis and Sex Pistols moment. Um, but I just I, it's funny, you know, we 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 had the as you said the macro finance panel on the second day, and that kind of brought things much more into a world where I'm comfortable. Um, I'd heard a lot about change in sport and how sports models were changing, how franchises were being forced to change, how broadcasters were being forced to change. Um, but that, that change was very much confined to the sports world. It's what, what do we do within the world of sport to, to tweak and improve our performance, to, to better understand our customer base. Once we got into that second morning, uh, you know, it became obvious to me that the, the, there are much broader changes afoot, and these are changes that you know we've talked about from a from a thirty five thousand foot level for some time. Um, but it, but it really felt like the world of sport was really being forced to confront some of the themes that we've talked about on this podcast. Um, themes which really only affect sport once they become more entrenched in the broader society, and and I think everybody listening to this now, whether they're involved in the sporting world or not, is surrounded now by evidence of the kind of change we've talked about here. Um, societal change, um, multi-generational change. And that that change is going to force sport to reconsider many, many things. Not just It's not just a case of, you know, how do we tweak our model, our revenue model, to, to best fit what we think is our audience. It's very soon going to become how do we tweak our revenue model to potentially survive because there's there's a storm coming um it's upon us and what you're seeing in the uk particularly in the last few days but for people that pay attention to finance you've seen similar things happening in places like japan um where currency and bond markets are are in turmoil and and these are kind of stories that are normally confined to the finance pages and most people don't really pay attention to them. They'll pay attention if they're going on holiday and they've realised that their holiday in pounds sterling terms to America or Europe is costing an awful lot more than it was when they booked it six months ago. Um, What the Bank of England are doing in the gilts market today doesn't mean much to anybody, but everybody, and I mean everybody, understands inflation. Everybody understands when their weekly shop uh, is, you know, 20% more expensive than it was a month ago, uh, people understand that instinctively, and they and they may not understand what's caused it, but they understand that things have suddenly become unaffordable. They understand headlines about strike action. They understand when they go to turn up the station in the morning and there's no trains running. So we're we're at that point where people are starting to get a visceral sense that that change is happening. If they're old enough to remember the seventies, it's going to be very uncomfortable to to be faced with a set of circumstances that the last time they saw them meant, you know, in 1976 in the UK, for example, being bailed out by the IMF. You know, we've had the IMF talking smack to the UK government again today, which is, you know, this is not a third world country, this is the United Kingdom. So we're about to go into a very different environment, not just for sport, but for, importantly, the public who pay for sport, whether they pay for it through their 
a pay TV subscription or they pay for it at the turnstiles, or they pay for it with the replica shirts they buy their kids, the world has changed and people are going to be waking up to that um, by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in very short order. And that's going to pose challenges not just for the world of sport, but um, but for the survival of some of some of these sporting franchises. Grant, if we were to have um, we were having a conversation, and there was a say a CEO of a of a rights holder, medium size, big size, doesn't matter, with your macro hat on, what would you be telling them if they're saying so? Understand, you know, cost of borrowings up, inflation's up. That there's all of the political instability going on in different parts of the world, and therefore the fuel prices, etc. In simple terms, what would you be telling them? Say it's a UK business, just because UK is facing the eye on a sort of general pub conversation, which is, after all, how we like to pitch this um, this podcast. What would you be saying to watch out for? And I know this might sound very basic, but I think for our listeners, it'd be very interesting to put it into into real into real world reality for, say, a football club or a rugby club or a cricket club or whatever it may be. Well, there's a couple of things, ways to come at it, Charles. First of all, the lesson is your customer, the person who buys your tickets, the person who buys your replica shirts, has an awful lot less money to spend. So they are going to cut back. And let's face it, if they've got a shirt from last year, they're not going to buy this year's shirt. If they went to 20 games last year, they might only go to 10 games this year. Those are the sort of things that get cut back on quickly. If you're a club or a league looking to sell yourselves to private equity, I've got an even worse story for you. You Their cost of capital is going through the roof. And even though there's an awful lot of money burning holes in people's pockets, they've raised this money and they don't want to give it back. The hurdle rates are becoming very, very difficult. And, the, and the, the, the returns they're going to have to make versus, look, 4% you can buy in a two-year, you can get in a two-year treasury now. Um, so every aspect of this has become an awful lot more complicated for everybody involved, from the fan to the rights holder, to the brands, to the broadcasters, everybody. You know, it, And this has happened very quickly. What, what's been interesting is what's happening now has been at, at the you know, top of a lot of people's mind in finance um, for a number of years, and, and people have been scratching their heads as to why this hasn't happened already, uh, the amount of stimulus poured onto the flames during COVID, as it turned out, was the accelerant that this situation needed. But you know, make no mistake, this this situation has been brewing for some considerable amount of time, and all the all the signs about how easy it's been to borrow money, how cheap mortgages have been, how... how um, astronomical the rise in house prices has been they're all great when they're happening and if you happen to be trying to borrow money which private equity has been and clubs have been and leagues have been or if you've been wanting to buy a house which many people through covid have wanted to do it's been great but uh, you know after that comes the inevitable hangover and here we are um we're running into it full bore and, and anyone that's borrowed money uh, to borrow a house and has a, a floating rate mortgage. Um, and I know in the UK it's it's tough to fix for more than sort of a handful of years. In the US, you're looking at 30-year fixed mortgages, which were 3% a couple of months ago. They're 7% now. You know, what that does to the affordability of house prices is extraordinary. You know, the, 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 with the same monthly payment, the house you can afford to buy is half the price. Um, and that will feed through into house prices because the people who are borrowing them, borrowing the money, can't afford to buy those houses anymore. That's going to ripple through the UK. You know, they've, they've made this stamp duty cut again. Um, we're already seeing it in extraordinarily overpriced housing markets like uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. We've seen house prices already fall double digits there and there's more to come. So, you know, the, the world changed some time ago but it's only really becoming apparent to people now because that change is being reflected in the price of groceries, the price of petrol, the price of heating their homes, you know, necessities. Um, and this is incredibly important to understand because this change, when you get faced with it, you, you don't have an option. I, I, I've, I've told this story many times, but it's such an important one. If there's one person that hasn't heard it, I'm sure it'll stick in their head. But I interviewed um, a guy called Jeff Gundlach, who anyone that inhabits the world of finance will know. He's he's known as the Bond King. He's a very, very shrewd investor and a very smart man. And he said something to me that stuck in my head from six or seven years ago. He said, you know, we were talking about fear and greed as the two uh, driving forces of, of 
the stock market. Um, you know, and the, and the reason I was saying was that the reason that stock markets go down aggressively and kind of go up incrementally is that not everybody is greedy, but everybody gets afraid. So when fear takes over, everybody's afraid. And so the market goes down. When greed takes over, some people just aren't really paying attention. So it, it, it goes up a lot slower. And what Jeff said was really profound. You know, he said there's something more powerful than fear and greed. He said, and that's need. He said, if you need to do something, you don't have a choice. And people need to feed their kids. They need to put a roof over their heads. They need to put petrol in their car to go to work. So they don't have a choice but to pay these higher prices. Um, and that means cutbacks elsewhere. And, and if you think that um, sport at times like this isn't one of the most disposable industries, then you're whistling past the graveyard, I'm afraid. Um, and the price of taking a family of four to a football match or an NFL game or a baseball game or an NBA game or a day out at the Open Championship, that price is and has been for some time unaffordable in a world where energy costs are higher and housing costs are higher and food costs are higher. And we've hit it in, you know, in, in very swift fashion. So that's going to come as a shock. So this stuff hasn't rippled through the world of sport yet, but it's coming. Rog, you're, um, a, I think this would be the right word in Italian, I hope it is, a consigliere to quite a few businesses. And you've also been at the top table um, for a, a very major rights holder in, in a previous life. What would you be telling rights holders right now, given, given what Grant's just presented as, as the real world coming out, not the sort of gloss paint of, of the marketing world and as you talked about the narrative. If you were to sit down with people, what would you be saying to, to, to do over the next 30 to 60 days in terms of just beginning to batten down the hatches? What, what would you be advising? It's a good question. And actually, my experience is directly related to a moment like this. Uh, I was there um, when the, there was the dot-com bust uh, that was um, exacerbated by the Twin Towers of 9-11, which led to a media recession. Uh, and you know, Giles, all the time I say that um, media dominates the, the, the fortunes of the sports industry um, because ultimately it all comes back to advertising and subs and everything like that. Um, and, and I would make one specific uh, answer to the question you've made Um for my sins, I still get a lot of people asking me about um, the Scottish football and, and the deals that they do. Um, the Scottish football has, um, in the last week, renewed uh, with Sky without going to tender uh, for an extension of the current deal at what many people think is not a big enough uplift. Um, they compare Scottish Premier League rights to other similar markets, especially in Scandinavia, and they say, why are we getting so much less? Well, one of the answers is because Scotland sells a lot less games than other leagues that sell all, the le all their games. But the point I want to make is that whilst everybody wants me to pile on and say, yeah, it's a terrible deal they've done in Scotland, why didn't they do what you always wanted to do with your own channel? Um, I, I, would, I would tend to say now that um, Neil Doncaster at the Scottish Premier League probably has done the right thing because of the choppy waters we're going into, because of the, the complete change in risk profile that we're about to, to, to enter. Um, we're in a world of a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Uh, so um, I, I, I think there is a premium on cash, there's a premium on liquidity, and, and in, in, in the world that you and I work in, uh, Giles, of an early stage, there's a premium on what is called runway. Um, there are times when you can risk, and there's a time when you play defence. And for everybody now, I have been saying this, you know, um, I've been saying this for a long time to my clients, um, the, the, the world is changing, Um think a little bit more about, um, you know, raising money in, in a different way, the right way, um, uh, all of that. I, I just think that uh, it's been a wake-up call the last couple of um, days or weeks or maybe months. But, you know, um, that's what I'd be saying to them, Giles. I would say there's a moment to risk, and I've always been a risk-taker in life. I love it. But there's a moment where you just hunker down you know, you, you, you circle the wagons and you um, ride out the storm. 
And you know, it's interesting to me, all of this is that having worked with many rights holders, worked in, really exclusively in the sports industry for 30 years, and this is to not decry the sports industry. There's a lot that's wonderful about it. It's a passion industry. People are very, teamwork tends to be very high in the sports industry. People like working together. They understand the ethos. But it seems to me, and this is some conversations I've been having with former colleagues at HSBC, is that right now, this kind of conciliary and, and mentorship for senior executives in the sports industry is going to be very, very important because a lot of people will not have seen this before. They'll have expected that money up front from sponsors who were willingly happy to th- throw money in without any real return on investment. Well, that ain't going to be continuing anytime soon. In the, old, in the old model of sponsorship, it was the first to go in a downturn because no one could prove the value. Unless you're a smart sponsor that has figured out the audience through data, and most haven't, then that's going to be chucked under the bus in the next 18 months. It just will, because marketing directors or rather CFOs will be going, sorry, you can't prove it. If you're not, if you're not, if you're not dealing in performance marketing, then we're not interested. So that is a problem. You've got who knows what media costs are going to be, but two in the hand is, as you say, probably wise. If you haven't got that, there's a problem there. Ticket revenue, merchandise revenue, all of these costs begin to shrink. And it feels to me that there may be some, you know, we've just seen with what we've seen happening with Worcester Rugby Club, which is a small rugby club. And it's been, that wasn't even in a downturn. And it was disastrous. So I feel right now, if I were... If I were a CEO of a rights holder, I'd be looking around for some some wise guidance. And I'm not pushing anything or anybody, but just you, this is the time when you need to understand what it's like in um, when things get bearish, and it and it is bearish. Yeah, um, you know, I'm a finance guy, um, and there's different types of finance guys, and there's different moments for finance people in business. Uh, in the good times your CFO in the main is working on sourcing new capital in probably quite um, easy times. And you probably think about piling on debt because debt's got a lower cost of capital. You you do a lot of fundraising, you do, you buy back shares and you take on more debt, you lever up. That's what, that's what I call strategic corporate finance when the cost of capital is low. Um, And I think that's been the world we've been in. Sports not really had to deal with that because they're just the recipients of other people doing that in the media sector, especially. Um, And then there's the other type of finance guy, which is the one that knows how to uh, make a margin, how to run a business where uh, your working capital needs are positive for you. Um, bring money in quicker, um, delay payments to suppliers, um, knowing what uh, you're offering to your customers and if it's working for them. What, what I mean by that is two or three times I've said on here, um, sport needs to think itself really as cost per minute content that a media customer can uh, buy. It doesn't think like that. It has never thought like that. It's always thought about the event, the tradition, uh, mustn't touch this, mustn't touch that. But now they're going to have to say, what I'm putting on as my sport is that cost effective content for my customer, which in the main is a broadcaster. And to do that, you need really good finance guys that are, 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 are a different breed. You know, very few can do both ends, can do the strategic corporate finance end and that really like hardcore operational, um, you know, uh, really, really finance director more than CFO, if, if, if I can make that distinction. I, I, and, and, you know, so I think um, if I was in a rights holder just now, and I've lived a world of, you know, basically put out a tender, wait for everybody to bid, slap yourself on the back when the rights have gone up and, and go out to lunch. Um, I would be tooling up now, Giles. I would be tooling up with hardcore finance girls and guys and saying, protect me because I don't know what's coming here. And I sense that um, cash is king, marginality is important, um, return on investment. And I've never lived in that world. I've been a a relationship guy that's put out tenders and that's been good so far. But I think those days are um, 
are gone, are gone. Yeah, Roger, um, I think that's uh, it's hugely important. You know, in, in my world, you look around and you see uh, you know, entire trading desks, at, whether it's banks or hedge funds, that have never seen an interest rate hike cycle. And what's interesting about this is what you say is absolutely right. Uh, that's exactly what businesses should be doing, right? Cash is king, and you have to make sure that your business works. All the time you could borrow money for zero cost, your business didn't have to work, which is why we saw companies like Netflix go out and spend hundreds of billions of dollars on content because they could always go and borrow more money and and eventually we'll get so many customers that, yeah, we'll get so many customers that, you know, then we'll start making our money. Um, And that works when you can roll your debt over for no money and you don't have to earn a return on your capital um, because you can borrow more. That's worked and it's worked for such a long time now, for 20 odd years, you've been able to do that, constantly roll your debt over. Now you can't because when you're, Debt runs out, and you've got to finance it at six, seven percent. You know, and, and junk yields start going back up to double digits. None of it works. None of these businesses work. And so there's going to be a moment in time where a, a lot of guys who have managed to run these businesses in one world are going to go to do the same thing they've always done: go back to the well and say, "Ah, oh, well, you know, okay, we we still aren't making a profit, but we'll just go and borrow more money." And the bankers are going to come to say, "Yeah, that'll be ten percent." And that's it. Those businesses do not work. They cannot, they cannot continue to exist. We haven't reached that point yet. And there are still guys running these businesses who either don't understand that the world has changed or can't wrap their hands around the ways in which it's changed. But the guys you talked about, Rog, finding those hardcore finance guys that have lived and worked and run businesses through a cycle like the one we're going into, that's not an easy thing to do. Those guys are either old uh, or they've been farmed out because they wouldn't borrow stupid amounts of money because they said, well, this, you know, we've got to be careful here because they've, they've seen the negative side of it. Those guys got laid off and they were replaced by guys who came in. You know, there's, there's, there are stories, Stan Druckenmiller, one of the greatest investors of all time, um, told a story about when he was a young guy and you know, when the market had turned in the early 80s, um, after a a decade where people didn't want to even hear the word stocks, he as a young guy was put in charge of a desk. And and he asked his boss, you know, why are you putting me in charge of this desk? All these other guys are way more experienced than me. And he said, and the guy said to him, because you don't have the scars that they have. You're not frightened. You'll go and you'll go and you'll you'll swing for the fences because the world's changed. Same thing's happened, but just in the other direction. You've now got C-suites stacked with people who are happy to swing for the fences because their incentives are aligned with their share price going up and they can borrow money and borrow money, it's fine. You need to find people to bring in who are going to say, right, no more. We need a Scottish accountant, Rog. We need someone that's going to worry about costs and worry about return on capital. Where are you going to find those guys? Because they're all 60, they're all 70. They're either retired, they're disillusioned. They're not going to want to come back into the world that they know is coming so it's going to be a really, really difficult thing to do. It sounds so simple to say, well, we'll just get some guys who are much more careful with the money. Um, it's not going to be that easy to do. And a lot of companies are going to go to the wall because they can't run their businesses the way they've become conditioned to do. Yeah, um, that's all true. That's all true. I think if, if people are listening to this and, you know, we heard this at Como a little bit um, and we discussed this with... Um, John Wall Street, um, when we talked about Julian Brigton's idea that private equity was perhaps um, a little bit of um, smoke and mirrors, they will always say, oh, there's so much capital and cash sloshing around that, um, yeah, the world's changed, but these guys that have raised money, they need to deploy it. They'll continue to buy Chelsea. They'll continue to fund... Um, you know, businesses, buy businesses like Delta Trade, like uh, they, they, they will continue to do that. Um, Grant, let me ask you this then. You know, when you have seen in the last two days statements like pension funds are at risk of going bust because they're getting margin calls, can you take these kind of comments that are dramatic and 
let people who are interested in PE funds that may or may not invest in sport and link the two. Where do you see this wave rippling forward? Well, Ross, this this wave is going to ripple everywhere, right? What what we're talking about here is the cost of money, and money underpins everything. So if you dramatically increase the cost of that money, you affect every single transaction on the face of the planet. It, it was the same in the other direction. You know, if you if you keep money, the cost of money artificially low, particularly at zero you're interfering with every discount rate that every company is looking at trying to understand whether that business works. Well, everything works if money's free. And money's gone from being free, as I said, those mortgage rates have gone from 3% to 7% in a couple of months. That's how quickly this stuff is moving. If, if you look at, you know, anyone here that has, looks even casually at finance will have seen charts of, of uh, either currencies, the Japanese yen, the British pound at you know, 30, 40-year lows against the dollar, the Japanese yen breaking out of a 10-year sideways trading, trading range. They'll look at uh, you know, US two-year and five-year treasury yields and see, again, charts that you don't even have to understand finance to look at and say, okay, something's broken here because that chart is off. And for, for something going back 25, 30 years to move in that dramatic a fashion, something's going on here. And, and when that something is the cost of money, you, you don't have to know the ins and outs of how pension funds work. You don't need to know the ins and outs of how private equity works to realise that the whole f- the financial system is built on money. And if the price of that money has gone to those kind of levels in that space of time people haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet and and it's going to break a lot of things Roger. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, and that's been our theme for about a year Grant we've been saying this but the answer has always been and, and this is what I want you to you know answer specifically the belief that you know various private equity funds all around the world have raised billions over the last 5 years uh, and even if rates have gone up they're going to have to deploy it anyway. Or are they just going to give their money back to their limited partners, their, their investors, and all of a sudden the wall of money that sport has benefited from all of a sudden isn't there anymore? Both is going to, you know, both of those outcomes are going to happen. There will be unscrupulous guys that, that want their fees and will invest this money and figure, look, we've got five to seven years to get this right. And hey, look back. 25 years there wasn't a five to seven year period where this wouldn't have worked out so hey it'll it'll be fine don't worry about it and it's tough now but the money's locked up and there will be guys older guys more more risk averse guys that say we're not going to be able to do what we've done for the last 20 years and i don't want to be on that hook um and they'll give the money back so you know it's 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 not an industry-wide decision rog it comes down to the people involved now. This is this comes down to who have you given your money to? And if you've given it to the wrong guy, then that may not have mattered for 20 years because the rising tide lifted all boats. But if you've given your money to the wrong guy now in this environment, you, for the first time in a long time, have to face the prospect of not getting it back with a juicy return. In fact, getting it back at all becomes, um, becomes the main thrust. Grant, this is... This is sobering stuff, and you've been bellwethering this for a long time. Both of you have been. So this isn't new news, but it's still sobering. And I, I, I work in narrative. I, I, in my mind, I've got Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat. We had seven bumper years and then seven crap years. But Joseph, being clever, he, he p- prepared through a dream to, uh, to get the pharaoh prepared so that there were seven years weren't too bad. Well, I'm not sure that happened. And I'm not sure there is preparedness because that's been the reality. So my question is, how long, and this is impossible to answer, I know this, but I'm just intrigued from you both. How long does this last for? Is this, is this a long, are we in for a long haul? Is this two, three years? And what, what can be done? What, I mean, as you say, they're battening down the hatches, etc. but there's going to be a lot of people just not prepared. But how long does this last? Or is that impossible to say at this point as a, as a macro guy? Grant, can I take that one? I'd like to talk a little bit about you. 
Um, Grant in, in his day job, um, one of the podcasts he's done is called The End Game, um, which speculates and has speculated for many years about how this ends. And the context to that, Giles, I need to explain to you. In the old days, um, there was something called the business cycle, which um, was a natural thing. Um, there was boom times, people then invested too much, that created overcapacity, that led to recessions, and there was what reset what um Scott Galloway actually, Prof Scott Galloway said yesterday was the cleansing effect of a recession that brought everything back into kilter. That is the world of macro and indeed micro that my generation of businessmen and financiers grew up in, the business cycle. What has happened, and and I hope people can follow this, I think it's relatively uh, intuitive. What has happened, especially since 2008 and the the big uh, financial crisis, is that central bankers have tried to avoid the business cycle in the part of recession. They have said that is a horrible thing. We can't afford that because debt levels are so high. We need to kick the can down the road. Anybody from a finance background will start nodding now because these are all the phrases that have been used. Kick the can down the road. Avoid the business cycle. Um, Quantitative easing, which is money printing, to keep demand going. Uh, Build growth on the back of new debt. Um, those is, that is what our leaders in the financial markets, the central bankers, have done for the best part of two decades. One could argue almost since the dot-com bust. Um, so when you say how long does this last, I'm going to throw it back to you, Giles, because, you know, let me take the example of the UK. Um, rather quaintly, um, the UK was hoping to reverse its money uh, printing, uh, going from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. That was the stated plan of the Bank of England. Um, what they did yesterday is they threw that out the fucking window. They just said, we are back in quantitative easing. So when you say how long this is going to last, it's how long can central bankers continue to kick the can down the road? And Grant, uh, for many, many years, has said this is all fine and good with one proviso. When inflation hits, they are between a rock and a hard place because to control inflation, you have to raise interest rates. That's what's happening now. So um, I I would just like to say that Grant is so respected in the serious, serious finance community because he's been saying this would happen and the end game has been his flagship meme and now it, it is the moment for exactly that. Well, uh, that's very kind of you, Roger. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in my in my long term scepticism about all this. But look, it, it's not it's not like there's any end zone dancing going on. This is this is this is. Some, this is something I've hoped for a long time I'd be wrong about. Um, but I, I think what's happened in the last couple of days, your point about the Bank of England, what they're doing, uh, is very interesting because we, we've seen the UK get into trouble. We've seen the, the pound. We've seen the reaction by world markets to the Chancellor's budget and to trustonomics, as they've predictably been called, I suppose. Um, we've seen... The Japanese yen. We've seen the market's reaction to uh, what the Bank of Japan is doing, and the the nuance of this is that your point is right, Roger. Though I would argue it goes back way further than the dot com. This goes back to Greenspan in the eighties and the, and the response to the to Black Monday in nineteen eighty seven. But um, this idea that well we'll cut interest rates, they did that for. 20 years, and every time there was a, a bump in the road, they cut interest rates, and it and it worked. Then it started to not work. We got to 2008, so they started quantitative easing. That worked. Uh, it compounded the problems. It didn't deal with any of the problems. It just masked the symptoms. Now, to see what's happening today, when they've instinctively gone back to quantitative easing, and what's happening with the pound now is the market telling you, Interesting. That's still all you've got. Well, now 
we can see the whites of your eyes. And so now we haven't taken on the central banks. We haven't taken on the pound because obviously printing money to buy your own debt is always going to be um, reflected ultimately in the, in the value of your currency. Uh, but because markets haven't taken central banks to task through the currencies while they've done this, people assume it can go on forever. Now the markets sense weakness. They sensed it in the Bank of Japan and they took the yen from 120 to 145. The Bank of Japan's had to intervene. Uh, they've taken on the Bank of Japan in the bond market. The Bank of Japan said we were going to we're going to peg the 10-year point on the yield curve at zero and we'll buy as many bonds as you want to sell us, i.e. we're bigger than you, so come at us all you want. We're going to just stand there and buy them. They did that for a while and eventually the markets started now challenging them, saying, well, we're going to start selling and see how many you can take. The Australian Central Bank did the same thing with their um, two or two or three-year uh, bond. They, they pegged the interest rate. They were forced out of it, and the interest rates there tripled overnight. So central banks are now weak, and the fact that the Bank of England has come in with the same old play, expecting it to work again, this is where things get very, very interesting because the market's now saying, right, we now see that that's all you've got. Now, for for the public, for pension funds, for investors, this is not all good news because what I suspect comes next are things like capital controls, are things like credit controls. Uh, there's a name for it. It's called financial repression. And if anyone listening to this doesn't know what that is, it's worth looking it up. It basically means that restrictions are going to be put on you and what you can do with your money. Um, pension funds will probably be mandated to buy a certain amount of government debt. Um, none of this is good for currencies. None of it is ultimately good for anybody, but the central banks in China can keep the, keep the veneer of stability um, apparent. But we've reached the end game, it looks like. We've reached the phase. It's not just something that happens overnight, but we've reached the period where central banks are now being challenged and they will have to come up with ever more creative ways to restrict the ways in which they can be attacked. And that that does not bode well for investors. It certainly doesn't bode well for savers. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the next phase of this crisis is about to begin. And all the things we've talked about, Rog, over a number of years now, are going to change the way everybody in the sports world is forced to think about what they do with their capital. And this is not going to be good for... Uh, rights holders who figure that their club, their league, their product is worth today what it was worth last week, because it just isn't. Well, this is um, this is salutary. It's very sobering. And I think I have to lighten the mood before we go, because for the last, I don't know, four days, five days, when did Kwasi Kwarteng, um, he made his announcement on the Friday, the whatever it was, when we were all in Como. And what neither of 21st. you know is... Yeah, so... Ever since that announcement 23rd, was made, sorry, 23rd. 23rd of September, I have been feeling magnificent and huge guilt that all of this in the UK might be my fault, the whole thing in the UK. And I say that because I genuinely, I was at uh, junior uh, boarding school with Kwasi Kwarteng. Oh, and I was four years... Well, I was also at, school, at the same school with uh, George Osborne. He used to be called Gideon, but he um, became George. But that's another story. <gasps> um, but Kwasi Kwarteng arrived from, uh, I think, from Ghana, aged eight years old, and he arrived in my dormitory at my uh, boarding school. This is a true story. I'm 12. You sure you I'm want to go any further, Giles? I'm just yeah, wondering yeah. where no, this no, goes no, now. No, 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 And I'm about, I was then <laughs> this is about, the same, about the same size as I am as I am now. And I used to uh, think that it was good fun in the dorm for pillow fighting and to, you know, just get things going. I was the rugby player. Anyway, this big young lad called Kwasi Kwarteng comes in there and he's eight years old and he is very, very ebullient. He is good fun. Anyway, he takes part in a pillow fight, all good fun. And I absolutely slug him one and he goes spinning across the room and has to go and see Matron. And it's all a bit of a not good first night. But anyway, he gets through it and he's a good lad. But I felt a bit of guilt ever then that maybe I knocked some brain cells and maybe it's all been my fault. But thank God for you, Grant and Rog 
that you've explained it to me and all our <laughs> listeners that actually it may be beyond Quasi Quateng and Giles Morgan, the uh, the pillow fighting meister from Southwest London. Giles, I, I sh- it should be me thanking you, frankly, because instead of long, boring, complicated answers, I can just now say, you know why all this is screwed? Because my mate Giles Morgan hit Quasi Quateng <laughs> with a pillow. It's way, way easier. Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. It's huge pleasure. Yeah, just cut to the chase. It's always always the, the, the best Well, way. gentlemen, look, we've reached the end of uh, another hour. Look, this is fascinating stuff, and, and the beauty of this, um, I guess, in some ways, is that this is the beginning of something, not the end of something. And, and look, I, 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 I don't think we should trivialise this. Um, we are living through history, and it'll be interesting to, you know, kind of keep track of this as it unfolds because what I suspect is going to happen next is is going to be something that that very few generations have lived through in the past and uh, you know we'll we'll be able to document it. it it's not all fun but hey yeah what I'd like to do gentlemen actually because this is where you two are in your sweet spot is over the next few months with the groundsman um, I think it would be really helpful if we have little segments where you just give a little update on where we are, because this is all happening in in really, really in warp speed now. And I think every month, just giving our listeners a, a chance of where things to go to understand on a global level and a macro level where it's going will be very helpful. Well, and, and I'd like to suggest that that, that that at the at the next sports summit, Rog, um, at the end of all the sessions, we have a pillow fight. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'll win. I I'm on Giles' team. I'm on Giles' team. <laughs> well, you know, but let, let's, you know, seriously, let's take, let's take Giles's point um, there for a second. Uh, and everybody has listened to what you've said, Grant. You take a, you take a deal um, like Jerry Cardinale buying AC Milan. And I'm not giving away any secrets from Como here because this is in the public domain. He's got, Vendor finance from um, Singer from from from, Singer. from Elliot. Yeah. Now that's not a guy, that's not a guy you want to be owing money to. This is a guy who, when the Argentinian government owed him money, he sequestrated a warship or something. I mean, like this guy doesn't mess around. So one of the things to watch out are all these football clubs that have taken on debt over the last uh, few years. Um, Milan's one of them now because that's how Jerry's financed it in a lot of ways. And they all of a sudden might be no longer um, hosting their banker in the box and talking about what's on the field. I sense those conversations might be slightly more tricky. Look, what I would say is this. There are an awful lot of very smart guys in finance, and Jerry is absolutely one of them. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's screwed. It means the people with vision will have will have put stipulations in contracts they've signed and deals they've signed that that, that take into account the potential of what we're seeing now. Um, so it's not just a blanket. Everybody who's borrowing money is screwed. Everybody who's lending money is screwed. It just doesn't work that Correct. way, right? But, but that's the stuff that will come out in time. That the, the people who've signed bad deals um, will know about it, right? And the people who've signed good deals but can't collect on them will know about that too. But it's going to come out in the fullness of time. Uh, the one thing I would say is, you know, I, I'd, I'd much rather have Jerry Cardinale invest in my money than the government of any country. If you're on the other side of a trade with the government, I guarantee you, you're the smartest, the smarter guy in the room. These governments are are inept at best, um, and uh, and foolhardy at worst. And so, everything they've been doing and all the stuff they've been, the policies they've been putting in place, have been designed to your point, Rog, to kick the can down the road and keep the wheels on this thing. And it works for a while until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, all the ridiculous deals you've made, all the stupid decisions you've made to try and keep the status quo instead of taking the pain that previous policies dictate needs to be taken in order to cleanse the cycle, as you said earlier on, um, it all it all shows up. So, you know, I, as I said, I, I'd, I'd much rather back Jerry Cardinale with my money uh, than I would um, Liz Truss or, or Giles' pillow fight buddy. 
Anyway, gents, look, that's it. That's it for another show. Um, for those of you watching this live, thanks for joining us wherever you are in the world. We appreciate every single one of you. Um, our thanks to our sponsor, Sports Digital, for helping us put this on at, at short notice. Um, and our thanks to, uh, to you, Roger Mitchell and Giles Morgan, um, and Sean in the background for, for all the technological genius he's done in making us all appear in the same box in the same window. Um, if you don't follow us already, uh, we will release this as a podcast in a few days if you want to listen to it again. Um, it won't be heavily edited, I don't think. Maybe the pillow fight story won't make it. Who knows? Charles might want to retract that. Uh, but um, you can follow us in the meantime on Twitter. If you don't do so already, you'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You can find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. You can find me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, and Andiamo. Andiamo. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.